Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, a Senate vote to protect abortion rights fails, but the larger fight has just begun. Joe Biden's top economic advisor, Brian Deese, talks about the White House strategy on inflation and more. And Donald Trump goes one for two in this week's primaries while getting some good news about his Twitter account. But first, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is officially the second biggest movie release since the start of the pandemic, and your favorite Crooked Pods are talking all about it. On X-Ray Vision, Jason and Rosie talk to writer Michael Waldron to ask how much of the film was informed by his obsession with Don Draper. And on Keep It, Iris shares thoughts on Elizabeth Olsen's buzzy performance of Wanda Maximoff. Uh, Keep up with all the latest news in culture by listening and following X-Ray Vision and Keep It wherever you get your podcasts. Also, Dan, uh, I believe you have an update for us on your soon-to-be-released book that I know all of you have already pre-purchased, Battling the Big Lie. What do you got? Well, Jen, I would say that if everyone listening or half the people listening or a quarter of the people listening had already pre-ordered the book, we would be crushing Kellyanne Conway and Bill O'Reilly, who, believe it or not, is alive and number one on the New York Times bestseller list this week. What's the book called? Killing something? What, what, who are we killing this week? The Killers. Ironically, he, we have gone full circle. He is now killing the killers. <laughs> the, the Bill O'Reilly book empire is now eating itself. Um, <laughs> in all seriousness, if defeating, if beating Kellyanne Conway, who's broken down two weeks, or Bill O'Reilly, or any of these people is not inducement enough, we have an announcement that every pre-order of Battling the Big Lie, which for those who don't know, is my book out on June 7th about the right-wing propaganda and disinformation machine, where it came from, how it works, and perhaps I think most importantly, what Democrats can do about it. For every one of those pre-orders, I will be donating a portion of the proceeds to the Texas Library Association's battle against book bans in Texas. And I think there is this connection between why Republicans spent so much time and energy building up Fox and Breitbart and Ben Shapiro and all of that, and why they are trying to stop kids from learning about our history, structural racism, LGBTQ plus issues. You know, I think in my view, it's all of a part of an effort for this shrinking conservative, mostly white minority to to hold on to political power. And so for every pre-order, we'll be donating a portion of the proceeds to Texas Library Association and my publisher, 12 Publishing, which is headed by Sean Desmond, a great guy and son of a Texas librarian, will be matching the donation for the next 1,000 books pre-ordered. Amazing. And, and if, but don't worry, if you were one of the amazing people who has already pre-ordered the book, I'm very grateful to you. And I will be making a retroactive donation from those proceeds for your purchase. So battling the big lie, out June 7th, pre-order it. Let's try to stop some book bans in Texas. Thank you so much. Fantastic. End of awkward pitch. I was. I thought that was very smooth. By book compelling. By book seven, we were gonna fucking nail this. <laughs> All right, let's get to the news. A bill to guarantee abortion rights nationwide was defeated for the second time this year on Wednesday, as all fifty Senate Republicans and Joe Manchin voted against the Women's Health Protection Act. Of course, the outcome was never in doubt because even if Manchin had supported the bill. He and Kirsten Cinema still refused to break any Republican filibuster on the issue. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Manchin said they'd support a narrower bill that they argue will outlaw any restriction that would put a, quote, undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion, which is the language in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the decision along with Roe v. Wade that a Supreme Court majority appears ready to overturn. But again, even if Democrats got those three senators on board, they'd still only have 52 votes 
when you need 60 to break a filibuster. Dan, why do you think Chuck Schumer held this vote? Was there any substantive or political value in doing so? Look, this was doomed to failure. It was unsatisfying. Much of the coverage focused on Democratic divisions and failure and weakness and the the limits to Senate control. But I'm not sure what the other option was, right? So as, as annoying as that was, I think it's probably a less bad outcome than a bunch of stories about how Democrats won't even take a vote on the issue, right? So I think in yeah. a world of bad and less bad, this was less bad. And I do understand the impulse in the wake of this opinion to do something, do anything, you know, and desire from the public, the people who worked with Democrats in charge to say, just do something, even if it doesn't work, just show us you're fighting. And I think that, you know, that's ultimately what they did. I don't think this is going to change the midterms. It's not going to change the fate of people's rights in various states, but it is, it's better than doing nothing, I think, which is probably an unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate reality of life in Joe Manchin's Washington these days. I guess. <laughs> it's just like it's I, I don't know I, I think the the political strategy there is that it's a uh, what what is known in Washington in politics as a messaging vote messaging bill the purpose of a messaging vote is to generate uh, press coverage that is favorable to you politically a scan through the headlines shows the New York Times headline about this was bill to guarantee abortion rights fails in the Senate Republicans used a filibuster to thwart the bill, but Democrats hoped a high-profile failure of their legislation would help them at the polls in November. That doesn't seem very favorable. Washington Post, Senate blocks bill to codify right to abortion. The Women's Health Protection Act failed as expected, but Democrats say the vote is about mobilizing voters, not passing legislation. I think the concept of a messaging vote or like stuff like that, I just think it's outdated at this point. I don't think that we live in a media environment where, like... You're going to take this vote, have this vote, and then have and then have all the the media cover it like Republicans blocked abortion access and Democrats fought hard for it. Like I just don't know. And, and again, I will say I don't think this is a big deal either way. I kind of think it was like a, a fairly meaningless gesture. And I also we can get into this. It's not like Chuck Schumer and the Democrats had any other options that they just sort of left on the playing field here um, because again. They're facing the Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema problem that they have been since Joe Biden took office. So it's not like there was anything they could do that they didn't do. I just don't know that it's much like the voting rights thing where you get everyone's expectations up that you're about to have a vote. And of course, the vote doesn't go anywhere. I think they did a better job of expectations management this time. There wasn't a bunch of efforts I being like, call your senator and tell them to vote for this. It was sort of like, we're going to hold right. this vote. We understand it. I totally agree with you on the anachronistic nature of message votes. And that's particularly true in an election cycle where there's really only one Senate Republican incumbent who is casting that vote, who we are running it, who is vulnerable. And so it's, it's, I think this is much ado about nothing. It's, I think you can argue it either way. I think given those choices, having the votes slightly better, not having the vote, but none of it is affecting people's ability to actually make decisions about their own bodies. Like that's not changing because of this. So Schumer said that he didn't hold a vote on the Collins-Murkowski-Mansion alternative because, quote, we're not looking to compromise on something as vital as this. Do you think that was the right move? 
Once again, I think there is a very loud, very aggressive, very vituperative online debate about something of limited consequence, because at the end of the day, what are we talking about here? We're talking about failing to protect people's rights by a vote of 49-51 or failing to protect people's rights by a vote of 52-48. Like what, like what is the substantive political difference of that? There is a larger conversation to be had about whether you should be sanding down differences to try to make the broadest appeal possible on an issue that the polls show you have broad appeal. Should you not do that? Are, are Washington Democrats overly sensitive to the opinions of activist groups? So this is a larger conversation. But at the end of the day, in this particular case, I don't think once they like the decision to have a vote or not decision on which one to vote on, I think is a very limited consequence for the much larger, much more important fight in front of us. I do think if you are going to hold a vote that is purely a messaging exercise, um, which, again, I just argued is of limited value. But if you're going to do it, um, I'm not sure why you don't hold the original vote on the Women's Health Protection Act. Get everyone on record on that. This is we want to codify Roe v. Wade into law. We want to guarantee abortion access across the country. Then after that one goes down, have everyone vote on the Collins Murkowski alternative to show now that you have a bipartisan majority in Congress in favor of uh, codifying current protections for abortion that are out there, codifying Casey into law and showing that uh extreme republicans are blocking a bipartisan majority then hold a vote on a provision that guarantees the right to contraception make the republicans take a vote on that since some of them are now going after contraception make them take a vote that guarantees the right to an abortion in the case of rape incest and the life of the mother again make make them take a vote on that because a whole bunch of republicans are now saying abortion bans with absolutely no exception so you just sort of go down the list and you don't vote only on these provisions because you don't want to be have a bunch of Democrats saying, oh, yeah, we're only for abortion in those cases. But you've already had the Democrats go on the record on the Women's Health Protection Act. And now you can smoke out the Republicans in the Senate who are taking extreme positions on contraception, on uh, exceptions in, the, in rape, incest, in the in life of the mother, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I'm just if you have the Senate majority I just wonder why you don't make Republicans take these uncomfortable votes, because, again, you want votes that unites your caucus and splits theirs. I agree with that. I think we may even see some of that if there is a budget budget resolution vote later this mm-hmm. year, uh, which we you may need a budget resolution to do budget reconciliation to pass covid aid, for instance. And then you have what the, they call the voterama where you're people can put anything up and you won't need 60 votes or a motion to proceed or burn 30 hours on the clock. So you can do a bunch of these things. But I think once in a normal world, like in this world, this outdated anachronistic world of message votes that we're somehow still talking about 10 minutes into this podcast. Uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. There you have a bunch of vulnerable incumbents you're trying to get on the record. Depending on your view of how Florida would perform in a midterm, we're talking about one person, we're talking about, about Ron, Ron, Johnson. Ron Johnson, right? And so it's not the most efficient thing. Like a series of show votes in the House, you know, if you were able to have such a thing in 2017 to make all those incumbent Republicans vote, you know, against pre-existing conditions, what else has value here? It's like, you know, we're worried about one person who is, with, even without a vote, going to take a batshit insane, stupid position on their own. Yeah, I. you're right. 
I think this only matters for the next conversation we're going to have, which is sort of messaging this for um, the midterms in general, for all the candidates who are running across the country. And I do think it's important there. Uh, So let's talk about what's next. Joe Biden responded to the vote by saying, quote, to protect the right to choose, voters need to elect more pro-choice senators this November and return a pro-choice majority to the House. If they do, Congress can pass this bill in January and put it on my desk so I can sign it into law. This, of course, is an undeniably true statement. If we elect a Democratic House again and we elect two more pro-choice, anti-filibuster Democratic senators, in addition to returning all the Democratic senators that we currently have to the Senate, Joe Biden will sign a law that guarantees abortion rights in America. That will happen. Now, you might say, okay, well, will everyone be willing to get rid of the filibuster for this? It's a good question. I will say that every single Democratic senator, except Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, voted to get rid of the filibuster for voting rights legislation a couple months ago, even though that failed. So, sure, maybe make sure that every Democratic senator goes on record to say that, um, you know, if we have two more pro-choice Democratic senators, they will get rid of the filibuster in order to codify the Women's Health Protection Act into law after 2022. But again, like that seems to be the most honest assessment (laughs) of how we actually get this done on a nationwide scale. Uh, We can talk about the states in a minute. Um, The question, of course, is how we do this, how we elect those 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 two extra pro-choice anti-filibuster Democratic senators. That's the real challenge. Um, And of course, return a Democratic House, also a big challenge. Here's a headline from The Washington Post this week, quote, GOP's midterm bet. Voters will care more about inflation than abortion. Um, What do you think about that bet? Mitch McConnell flunky Josh Holmes uh, is quoted in the story saying that abortion is, quote, not registering on any of the issue polls he's looking at. I would note that I put in the outline for this, I put Josh Holmes, Mitch McConnell's miniest minion. And you just like cross that out and put in something much nicer. Dan, you know why I crossed that out? Because I said that's Dan's joke that he put in the outline. <laughs> I want Dan to be able to Sean, use Dan's I, joke. I say I'll call Josh Holmes whatever the fuck I want. Fair. Okay, that's fair. Ne- <laughs> neither here nor there. Josh Holmes's stature is the least of his problems. Look, of course- Yeah, I don't know what his height is. I don't know if, if yeah, you want to go after his height. That's fine. I've never seen him in person. Yeah, I just uh, see his annoying quotes and hear his annoying voice sometimes. Yes. He, so I think as a general rule, if someone- works for, worked for, is a vocal supporter of, has been in Mitch McConnell's presence more than a dozen times, you should not trust them. Josh Holmes is lying here. We know he's lying because we've seen the polling. We know that people are highly engaged with this story. We know that Republicans, a significant number of Republicans, the majority of independents oppose what Alito is suggesting the court do. There's even a report out from the Center for American Progress Action Fund today, which shows that for only the second time in a very long time, progressive engagement on Facebook is exceeding conservative engagement. And it's all because of the Roe decision. So Mark people, Zuckerberg? Oh. Yeah, yes. So we know people are engaged in this issue, but that doesn't mean that come election day, Republicans won't be right that inflation trumps abortion as an issue. And that gets to the idea of issue salience, which is, I think, the most, one of the most important, but like least understood aspects of political analysis and strategy, which is issue salience means what voters are thinking about when they vote. And that's something that we control, right? Like that is not, that is not going to happen organically. It's not going to happen on its own. It is going to be what Joe Biden in the Senate 
and us and everyone listening does to make to shape what people focus on. And if it's inflation, Republicans are going to win. If it's abortion, we have a fighting chance. Abortion, and there are other issues there too, but that is one where we not where we have seen in polling that is to if people are thinking about that, it is to our advantage. And that is, I think, like that is one of the things that Dem- we've said this before, but the Democrats too often ask voters what they're thinking and then go find the best message to address that. And Republicans focus on what they want voters to be thinking about and then go try to move the conversation to that. And that's going to be, if we want to move the conversation, make sure the conversation in November, October, November, when people are voting is on abortion or something else that we want, we're going to have to work really hard because inflation is going to be in the news. It's going to be at the grocery store. It's going to be on the, you know, people are going to drive past those gas price signs all the time. And so we're going to have to work really hard to drive it if that's what we want, if we want to win that bet. Yeah, I totally agree. Look, very possible Josh Holmes is lying. Let's pretend he's not lying. The possibility here is that the polling on abortion is everything that we've said it is, but issue salience is not it's it's not a salient issue yet to enough voters. And that is possible, but and, and here's some reasons why. Cause I would also argue that that's changing as we're speaking right now. Um it's early. The court hasn't actually overturned Roe yet, nor have the full consequences of that action been felt across the country. Um, and of course, like you said, Democrats actually have to make something an issue. But uh, 538 had a, a piece about this the other week. There isn't a ton of awareness about abortion laws, or at least there wasn't before the leaked opinion. So there was an ABC poll before the leaked opinion found that only 30 percent of residents in the 22 states that have passed abortion restrictions since 2020 were aware of the restrictions in their state. Another poll found that only 38 percent of people who lived in states where abortion would become illegal if Roe is overturned, we're aware that that would happen. On the flip side, there's a new navigator polling out today. 73% have now heard about the leaked draft. 73% of voters. That's huge. That was almost the same. They found 78% had heard about Russia's invasion of Ukraine when that first happened, which was very, very high. So 73% have heard about the leaked draft. And since their April poll, there have been significant increases in the share of people who describe themselves as pro-choice. It's now 62-32, up seven points from April. Those who believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases is 59-37, up eight points. And that includes significant gains among independents and Republicans. And if you look at a state where abortion has been significantly restricted, Texas, uh, the complete ban there is now underwater in polling. 54% of Texans are opposed to that ban, and only 42% in favor, according to a recent poll. So this is something that where not just the polling on the issue itself, but the salience of the issue to voters is moving as we speak. So maybe Josh Holmes is looking at some outdated polls because this is now an issue that's actually getting people going. So the other big question is, what is the most persuasive way for candidates to talk about this issue? Um, The National Republican Senatorial Committee released a memo last week urging its candidates to, quote, (laughs) it's hard hard to even read this without laughing or crying. Uh, It's urging its candidates to, quote, be the compassionate consensus builders on abortion policy. Uh, And it even suggests sample ad language for Republican candidates in the memo. And the sample ad language reads, quote, I'm not in favor of putting women or doctors in jail. I would never take away anyone's contraception or health care. That's just the typical BS you get from politicians. Here's my view. I am pro-life, but in reality, forget about the political labels. All of us are in favor of life. Isn't that sweet? Uh, What does that heaping pile of horseshit tell you about how Republicans see the politics of abortion? 
And how do you think that should inform Democratic messaging on the subject? Well, it's very reminiscent of how they view the politics of Obamacare heading into the 2018 elections, which is they know they want to do something. They know the voters mm-hmm. don't want them to do it, so they're going to lie about it. Like all of that is a lie. Everything they're saying is a lie. You remember Josh Hawley and others in the 20 running ads in 2018 staring before a camera saying that they would always protect people with pre-existing conditions, even though they had each voted only months prior to repeal the protections of people with pre-existing conditions. That's what they're doing here. They're going to lie about their position. They're going to lie about our position. And so I think there are some ways in which I think Democrats have to address this. Is So we know Republicans are going to lie, right? Well, we can't get defensive where we're constantly just calling them liars. We have to be very aggressive and productive about our position. And just assert their position and not get into the back and forth here. Like they're trying to drag us into the mud. That's one. Two, they want to get into the Republicans know that when the issue is about access to abortion, Roe v. Wade, they have Democrats and people who support choice have the advantage. When you get into specifics around weeks and other things, the polling gets much more complicated. So they want to sort of bring it down. But, And then the third thing we have to do is we have to highlight consistently the most extreme positions of the Republicans, yes. where this is going, right? With the impact, right? That they want to put women and others in jail. They want to put doctors in jail, that they want to ban IVF, that they want to ban contraception. And there are, and every time some Republican state senator or candidate talks about that, we got to highlight it. The fact that in some of these major swing states, the Republican candidates running for governor are pledging to outlaw abortion with no exceptions. Not life of the mother, not rape, not incest, no exceptions. We have to make sure everyone knows that. Data for Progress had some useful message polling about what the best uh, messages were. I'm quoting here from the poll. They're testing pro-choice messaging against uh, anti-Roe messaging. Women and their doctors should have control over their medical decisions. The government should not interfere in personal matters like this. Families and individuals should have control over the reproductive decisions. 71% of voters, 49% of Republicans, and 78% of independents support that message compared to a Republican message which says the government should be able to make decisions about abortion, especially when it involves protecting the sanctity of human life, which is, I think, a very, that's not even putting any spin on the ball about the Republican position. That is like a very generic, neutral portrayal of their position. So I think that that the giving this between people and their doctors and not as opposed to the government and politicians is, I think, probably the strongest point we have of contrast here. I think I agree with all of that. I think that it's so important to give specific examples because like, you know, everyone listening here, we all know Republicans lie about this shit. But I think that it's it's worth constantly lifting up those examples. Mitch McConnell and his, his, quote, compassionate uh, consensus builders on abortion in the Senate have now floated a nationwide ban on abortion. Nationwide ban. If they are returned to, if, if Republicans have Congress and Republicans win the presidency, they have now said that they will explore nationwide bans. So you live in California, you live in New York, you vote for state officials that are going to protect abortion access, doesn't matter. They're going to ban it all across the country, okay? Take the Pennsylvania's governor race, for example. All of the Republican frontrunners support total abortion bans. Two of them refuse to support any exceptions for rape, incest, or the health of the mother. Three of them support putting doctors in jail. You vote for a Republican governor in Pennsylvania, a Republican governor wins in Pennsylvania, that's what's going to happen. Josh Shapiro, the Democratic governor, if he wins, abortion access is protected 
in Pennsylvania. That's the difference in that race. That's the difference between voting and not voting if you live in Pennsylvania. Marsha Blackburn, U.S. Senator from Tennessee, recently denounced the Supreme Court case that protected married couples' access to birth control, as did the leading Republican candidate from Arizona and each of the Republican candidates running for attorney general in Michigan. Republicans in Idaho and Louisiana are considering legislation that could ban morning after pills, IUDs, and IVF. This is all fucking real. It is not theoretical. It is not they might do this. This is happening in the country right now. You're absolutely right about the polling. And just to give people an example, like when you ask people to start talking about timing on abortions and, you know, 60% of Americans support abortion in the first trimester, 28% support it in the second trimester. So like that polling gets a little mixed. But when you, again, that you cited this poll that Navigator did this today too, uh, asked the same question, uh, which is, 80% of Americans agree that the decision to have an abortion should be left to a woman and her doctor compared to just 9% who agree it should be left to politicians in the government. And I do think it's worth that that messaging about the government should, you know, I mean, I, I think I think it's worth really drilling down on that messaging. Like every American should have the right to choose when to start a family, who to start a family with, and how many children to have. No politician or judge should ever get to impose a forced pregnancy on any American, especially a pregnancy that they didn't choose, a pregnancy that may have been the result of rape or abuse or one that threatens a person's life. And the government should never be allowed to dictate decisions about pregnancy that should remain between a woman and her doctor. Guarantee you that is an incredibly popular message that Democrats should go out and proudly say on the campaign trail, Every single day. And it puts Republicans in a very it puts a lot of Republicans who want to win in competitive districts. A lot of them in red districts are not going to fucking care. But the ones who want to win in competitive districts, it's going to put them in a tough place. And that's why the NRSC released a memo that's filled with so much lies, because they are fucking nervous about this. (laughs) That's the thing. like. They are nervous about it. I love that message. And it's exactly right. And and it can be, you know, built into a larger nerve because it's not just the Republicans also want to want the government to decide what you can say, what you can read, what yes. teacher, what teachers can teach, what companies can believe, right? It is the government wants to stop you, or a conservative government wants to stop you from doing the things you want to do. It's why they're coming for marriage equality next. And I think just on the point of what Mitch McConnell said about a national abortion ban, we should be crystal clear that if in January of 2025, there was a Republican House, Republican Senate, and a Republican president, the Republicans will eliminate the filibuster to pass that bill. There, the political momentum behind doing that will be unassailable. And on that too, because you know, there's a bunch of the fucking Hill reporters that that Mitch McConnell and his staff have successfully spun for a long time. They all think Mitch McConnell's a fucking genius and has these principles that he doesn't. Um, even if Mitch McConnell was like. I don't want to get rid of the filibuster. I've said this before. It's not going to be up to Mitch McConnell. He's going to have an extreme Republican caucus that is going to be like, hey, Mitch, you're either leader of this caucus and you let us get rid of the filibuster or we're going to nominate someone crazy. <laughs> Some right wing. We're going to have Rick Scott be the be the uh, the leader in the caucus. So you're right. It's absolutely going. Yeah. So Wh- think, whatever Mitch McConnell think says. Rob Portman and under this scenario, right? Rob Portman plays yep. by J.D. Vance, Herschel Walker, Ted Budd. Kathy Barnett. These are the Republican senators. There is no institutional as, as they get. Yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> I just love. Oh, you know, Mitch McConnell, he says that he doesn't want to get rid of. It. He's a real institutionalist. People on Capitol Hill know that. Yeah. OK. 
Okay. We'll see. We have uh, we've talked a lot about the congressional races. What are the key states where races for governor and attorney general and state legislature um, will really matter if the court overturns Roe? You can sort of, you know, what it's important to note about this decision or even in any version of this decision is that abortion becomes a state's issue. Right. Your constitutional rights will depend on where what state you are in at any given moment, which is not how constitutional rights are supposed to work. Um, And. Therefore, who you elect as governor, attorney general, local prosecutor, state legislator matters because they will decide whether abortion is illegal or either contraception is legal or illegal. What exceptions there are, all of that will be assigned at the state level. Now, in blue states where Democrats control all the levers of power, it, abortion rights will be protected. In red states where Republicans control all levers of powers, abortion rights are be extremely restricted or gone or banned immediately with much worse things to come. The focus is therefore on the purple states where Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Nevada, Georgia, et cetera, all the places where we have a chance to elect a Democratic governor, a Democratic attorney general. And that that will matter, right? They are the bulwark. They have a chance to pass a law to enshrine those rights. They can veto laws to try to further restrict them. The attorney general and prosecutor one is really important because Dana Nessel, who is the, we mentioned this in a previous pod, that running for a re-election in Michigan has said she's not going to enforce Michigan's anti-abortion law that will go in effect if and when Roe is overturned. Her opponent will and will prosecute it to the full force of the law. But having said all that, I mean, those are the states we're already telling people to get involved in. It's how we're going to protect democracy. It's how we're going to protect the integrity of the next election. It's how we're going to put in place, you know, higher minimum wages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like we know that. But I think there is the tendency then with those red states to say the ship has sailed. And I think that's a huge mistake because every vote in the state legislator matters. Every local prosecutor matters. And we have to compete there because that could be that we're not in, if we can't if we can't take control of the governorship and we can't take control of the legislature. We're not going to pass a law to protect people's rights. We're not going to repeal a Republican law in the books. But having a few more people in that state legislature may prevent something worse from happening, right? It could, it could be the one that prevents contraception from being banned. It could be what prevents IVF from being banned. It could be the difference between, uh, you know, outlawing access to abortion pills or all those things. So, like, that's why I think the stuff, this stuff that Run for Something and Emily's List and others are doing to compete in those state legislative districts in red states is important. Even if we're not going to take control of the legislature, I think just a couple more people who don't have some sort of uh, prehistoric mindset about people's healthcare decisions could matter a lot to a lot of people in that state. Yeah, totally agree. Um, Before we move on, we do have um, one more important angle of this story to discuss. Red hen, civility alert. Red hen, (laughs) civility alert. Paging Chuck Todd. Paging Chuck Todd, Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan, you're needed with a bourbon in the West Wing. Red hen, red hen, red hen. Honest, it just, it never, it never gets old. Oh, it's so funny. It never gets old. Um, thank you, Tommy. Thank you for that. There has been a, a, a particularly dumb debate over uh, completely peaceful protests that have sprung up at the homes of Supreme Court justices and senators. Congress moved with unusual speed to pass a bill that ramped up security for the justices by extending security protection to their families. Uh, The White House released a statement saying that the president believes in the right to protest, but that it should never include violence, threats, or vandalism. And Susan Collins actually called the cops on protesters who wrote a polite message on the sidewalk outside of her home in water-soluble chalk. Now, Dan, 
That was a joke. The water soluble chalk was that came from you, and I just took it. But I'm giving you credit I, for I it. Get, like we are a team. I put it in the outline that it's for you to take. Uh, what's your take on all this? <laughs> I also I took the water soluble chalk thing from Jonathan Chait and others. So okay. I want to just oh, wow. give everyone oh, free. Wow, I mean, look at that. It's like he didn't invent. It was water soluble chalk. It's a fact, right? <laughs> he doesn't own the fact, so he can't trademark that shit. Um, anywho. Like, obviously, this is the greatest threat to the Republic since Sarah Huckabee Sanders was denied a farm to table meal. We remember. We remember. The Red Hen. I mean, Red Hen. Alert. Red Hen. Chuck Todd, who I know, doesn't ever miss one minute of this podcast. Must wonder, (laughs) like, how did he get wrapped into this? (laughs) Just swerving out of our lanes. It's like a whack at Chuck Todd today. Anyway. All right. Anyway, look, this is obviously stupid and dumb and beside the point and just another example of how the political conversation always migrates to optics and civility, which prevents people from having to take a stand on real things or talk about real issues or deal with nuance or complexity. It's like, who gives a shit? There is no, like, obviously no one is condoning, is condoning violence, threats, looting. None of that's happening. We're talking about peaceful protests. They asked Chuck Schumer about this. And he said, I don't really care because I have people protesting in my house three times a week. People are always protesting there. Like it happens. The sanctity of Susan Collins's sidewalk aesthetics is so much less important than tens of millions of people losing a constitutional fucking right. Like, what are we doing? And even though the polling is very clear that majorities, huge majorities of Americans disagree with what the Supreme Court's about to do, the both sides mentality of the political press and the pundits draws them to the civility thing is you can you can have a bipartisan roundtable on a cable network talking about this, having a conversation about what it really means for millions of people all about if Roe is overturned is a very different and more complicated discussion that you don't want to have to take a stand on. I hate these conversations. I mean, <laughs> here's my view. I think peaceful protest isn't just good. It's necessary to be encouraged. I think violence and threats of violence aren't just bad. They're ineffective. Uh, and I think that calling the cops uh, about a, a drive-by chalking uh, <laughs> is one of the stupidest fucking things I've ever heard. So that's my view. I think that we should not focus on this debate. I think we should not focus on fucking Joe Manchin. Keep tweeting about Joe Manchin. Uh, that's not going to do anything to get anyone uh, rights to an, uh, access to an abortion. Not that you can yell all you want. We do you can yell about Joe Manchin. Focus on the fucking Republicans who are trying to ban abortion nationwide trying to criminalize abortion, throw doctors and women in jail, go after contraception, and like, let's make sure that we defeat as many of them as possible in November. This is an issue now. First of all, it's not just an incredibly important vital issue, a basic constitutional right. It is an issue where we have just recited a whole bunch of polling where Democrats should be on the offense and should be going after Republicans. So let's keep the focus there. (laughs) And John, how, how can we do that? Do you have any suggestions? If you want want to get involved, you should go peacefully protest, chalk in hand. But you should also (laughs) go to votesaveamerica.com slash row where you can donate and volunteer. The VSA community is incredible. All of you listening, all of you who've gotten gotten involved in Vote Save America from the very beginning, you are amazing. You've already raised, uh, since the leaked opinion, you've already raised over $300,000 to support more than 80 abortion funds. That's direct support to abortion funds and patients. Uh, You've raised over $30,000 
to help elect a pro-choice majority in the Senate. Again, those two pro-choice anti-filibuster senators that we need to actually get something done. And over 3,000 of you have signed up for Midterm Madness so we can elect a pro-choice majority in November. So I thank you all for that. Everyone who's gotten involved and everyone who's not gotten involved yet, please do. It's votesaveamerica.com slash row. Um, when we come back, Dan talks to White House economic advisor Brian Deese. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I. uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking that's about... going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and Suited to your schedule, just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. In poll after poll, Americans say inflation is their top concern. It's also Joe Biden's top priority. Joining us now to talk about that and so much more is the director the National Economic Council, and my old friend, Brian Deese. Thank you for having me, sir. Brian, yesterday we learned that in the month of April, inflation was down slightly, although still at a historic high. What is your analysis of those numbers, and what do they tell us about how much longer Americans are going to have to deal with elevated costs on food, gas, and other things? Well, it was heartening to see the number tick down a bit. Inflation is still uh, too high, but it's important to put the numbers in context. We have an economy that has extraordinary strengths right now. Uh, Strongest economic growth in 40 years, strongest labor market outcomes. The unemployment rate has come down significantly, which has opened up all sorts of opportunities, particularly for lower wage workers. People of color are seeing job opportunities and opportunities to get jobs with higher wages that they haven't seen in decades. And we have a pricing challenge. Prices are high. And as I said, it was good to see a little bit of of relief on that front in last month's print. Um, But we know what we now need to do, which is we need to build on those extraordinary strengths while focusing on doing everything we can to bring prices down and have prices normalize. And, uh, you know, that's a process that is going to uh, take some time, but we could accelerate it. We could move it faster. And there are practical things that we can do in particular to address the practical cost challenges that people are facing in their day-to-day lives. The cost of gas, the cost of food, but also the cost of healthcare, the cost of childcare, the things that, you know, add up to your monthly budget. And so obviously a lot of what is driving inflation is outside of your control, it's even outside of these borders, right? It's what ha- it's happening in Russia, it's lockdowns in China, it's stuff happening, just the general struggles to snap back from the pandemic all over the world. Recognizing there's limits to what you can do, and not to mention sort of the challenges of getting something through Congress, what are the tools in your toolbox that the White House can do that'll give people some relief? So the president talked about it this week as a plan that is about 
lowering families' costs and lowering the federal deficit. Uh, and we can make progress on both of those. Lowering families' costs, kind of obvious why you want to do that, right? You want to give uh, people relief when they're seeing these high prices. And we have a lot of tools that we can work with. Uh, just this week, we announced a, a program to reduce the cost of high-speed internet, broadband bills for 50 million Americans. People pay $100, $150 uh, a month to have high-speed internet. As we know, particularly now in a pandemic-affected world, having access to high-speed internet is, is a basic necessity to working, to engaging, to uh, engaging the educational system. We're going to bring that cost down for 50 million people um, by... 50, 60, $70 a month. And for a lot of them, we're going to make that free. Uh, we have the tools to do that in our own uh, power. Yesterday, the president was out at a farm and he was announcing steps to increase the amount of production that U.S. farmers and growers uh, can, uh, can yield this year. More wheat, more, coin, uh, more corn. That's good for prices because it means there's more supply of product on the market. It's also good for farmers and rural communities because it gives them more economic opportunity. We can take steps like this Steps like working with our ports, working with our truckers to move goods more quickly and more cheaply across the economy. And we're doing that. We're moving out on that. But as you said, there's also some steps that we need Congress's help on, like lowering the cost of prescription drugs. We could, by allowing Medicare to negotiate better prescription drug prices, lower the cost of prescription drugs and also lower the deficit, as I mentioned. It would reduce the amount of money the federal government has to pay in Medicare for drugs as well. So there are some places where we're going to need some help from Congress, but there's also places we can move on our own. One idea that is, uh, I think, largely within your power that's being pushed by a lot of economists out there, including our old colleague Larry Summers, is reducing or removing some tariffs on Chinese goods headed to America. I understand the political argument against that. I think it's pretty easy. What's the substantive argument against that? Larry argues, I think, that it would reduce the consumer price index, maybe a point to do that. What's the, what, I don't want to ask you why Larry is wrong, but what's the argument against that or why you guys haven't done that yet? Well, it's something that we're looking at. We're actively uh, analyzing, like any idea. You know, we're um, we're pragmatic. The president said inflation is his top priority, so we'll we'll look at any uh, um, idea wherever it comes from. In practice, what you're looking at when you're looking at tariffs is um, what will happen when you reduce uh, the tariff on a good, and how much of that reduction in the tariff will go to the consumer. The, you know, if you're buying us, uh, you know, if you're buying toys for your kid at the, at the store, uh, if you reduce the tariff on that, how much of that goes to you and how much of that goes to the company? Um, and that has to do with, you know, how much demand there are for the products, uh, where the products, uh, where the products are made other than uh, in the country where the tariff is applied. So you have to look at all of these and balance these, uh, these things out. There are different estimates of the impact. At the end of the day, none of these steps, to be clear, none of these steps, reducing tariffs, reducing internet bills, none of them on their own is going to be sufficient to bring prices down in the immediate term. There is no magic bullet. There's no single policy tool to do this. Um, but we're trying to look at every sensible step that we can take. Uh, and to do that, you know, consistent with the president's values. And it, it is important that even though inflation is top of mind for everybody and top of mind for the president, that we not lose sight of these underlying economic strengths. They did not happen just on their own. It was because Democrats and this president put in place an economic agenda that prioritized strong economic growth and strong growth and job opportunities, particularly for lower income working class people in this country. And that strength is something that we want to build on. We don't want to jettison. We don't want to lose track of that, even as we look at how we can address prices. I think that's one of the sort of broader you know, questions and concerns a lot of people have is the traditional, it's been a very long time since we have confronted inflation. In the past, the idea was 
the Fed, and I'm not going to ask you to comment on the Feds, but the idea was that you slow demand, right? You slow the economy down, which has consequences for a, a lot of the people that, you know, whether it's wage growth or in some, uh, you know, food industry or service industry, consequences for people that President Biden has talked a lot about helping. How do you find that balance between maintaining that, that growth, that strength, uh, the job market and addressing inflation? Is there a new sort of a third way approach, a different way approach than the, the old sort of 1980s Paul Volcker way of doing this? Yeah, I'd say two things to that. The first is uh, the Fed has an important role to play. They're they're in the midst of doing that. Well, we, and we and it is important that they have the independence to do uh, what they need to do. Um, one thing that we have really talked about is how can we build more um, space and more capacity on the supply side of the economy. It's sort of a progressive or uh, approach to supply side economics, which has you know traditionally been uh, the coin of the realm for conservatives. And what that means is that if we can uh, if we can actually create more in our economy, uh, and we can have more people working, we can produce more goods and more services in the economy. We can reduce price pressures, and also build on some of those economic strengths. So you take the issue of cars. I know this has been talked about a lot, but it's I think it's an example that illustrates where we are right now. The reason why car prices are as high as they are is because we're not building enough cars. We have a problem on the supply side. And that the reason for that is we don't have enough semiconductors, the computer chips that go into cars. If we can accelerate the production of semiconductors, particularly in places other than China, particularly in places with more secure supply chains, and, we, and that allows us to build more cars, that will reduce prices and it will put more people to work. It means there's more job opportunities as well. You can replicate that on housing. We have a real problem of affordable housing in this country right now. Rents are too high. Housing prices are high. That's good for homeowners, but it's it's a problem for people who are looking for homes. What we need to do is we need to build more affordable housing. We need to operate on the supply side, more supply of housing. If we do that, that'll help bring prices down, but also put more people to work uh, in, uh, in the context as well. That is a very different approach than the sort of traditional Republican approach which is the actual Republican approach right now of congressional Republicans, which is to say the principal thing we need to do is to make working Americans poorer. In the current plan, you know, their current uh, version of that is to increase taxes, have working Americans pay higher taxes, about $1,500 more for people making less than $100,000 a year. That is kind of a traditional view that we need to, we need to reduce the purchasing power of working class people. Uh, as a way to advance the economy. I think building and operating on the supply side is one important answer and alternative to that. Speaking of supply chain issues, there is a ton of coverage and attention right now given the shortage in baby formula. You have parents rationing formula, people driving hours of stores. Could you just help explain why that's happening and what the Biden administration is trying to do to help alleviate that bottleneck? No pun intended, obviously. Uh, absolutely. And it's right on my mind because um, as we're recording this, I will end this and walk downstairs and the president is going to uh, be on the phone with major retailers, Target and Walmart and, and manufacturers of, uh, of baby formula uh, to try to uh, move the ball. The reason why this is happening is because the FDA identified that there was a plant that made baby formula, particularly specialized baby formula, that was not meeting safety standards. And obviously, you know, in something as critical as baby formula, it's important that we maintain the highest uh, uh, standards of safety. 
that plant uh, shut down to address those safety issues that created um, problems in terms of supply. And that has been compounded by some of the supply chain challenges we faced. So uh, we're working on a, a couple of um, angles. The first is just make it easier to get formula in as many places to as many people as possible. There are a lot of restrictions about baby formula, understandably appropriately, safety and health restrictions about what type of formula can be sold in what context. In immediate circumstances like this, relaxing some of those without sacrificing safety is an important thing to do. We're working on allowing more imports from European countries, for example, where they do have high safety standards, trying to get more product uh, in immediately. And importantly, the president will today ask the federal regulators, the FTC, working with state attorneys general, to really increase our focus on price gouging. We're seeing some really um, unfortunate and illegal circumstances where people are going, buying baby formula, and then selling it online at exorbitant prices, taking advantage of the, uh, the, the shortfall in supply. And so uh, we're going to take some action today to really try to crack down on that as well. You know, every I'm sure that there is an element of probably painful deja vu for you from your time working for President Obama. Back then, you helped President Obama during the campaign figure out what his economic policy platform would be, what he would do when he got in office. Then a crisis created and exacerbated by his predecessor, you know, caused you to rip up a lot of those plans and focus on stemming the crisis. Similar situation with President Biden with the pandemic continuing to persist, and then Ukraine. I mean, just a just a parade of. Uh, problems that have happened that are beyond your guys' control. You know, what often I think gets lost in that because of the need to address, you know, crisis after crisis is like, what is the central economic vision or philosophy of the president, right? Obama spent years trying to get, dig out from under that, from having to focus on a stimulus first, as opposed to a, you know, a giant tax cut for working people. Having, you know, obviously we're going to have a big discussion in the coming months and years about President Biden's economic philosophy versus that of Republicans. He started that conversation last week. How would you define Bidenomics or Biden's approach to the economy? I do. I associate myself with that frustration. But I also think that um, President Biden has been remarkably consistent on this front. The way he describes it is he wants to build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. Uh, and that's a very, I think, straightforward and colloquial way uh, of describing in economic terms uh, where what you're trying to do is create more power and more opportunity and more security for uh, the bottom half of the income distribution and middle-class families based on a theory that if you can actually build that type of economic opportunity, the entire economy is gonna do better. Uh, and he contrasts that with kind of conventional trickle-down uh, economics that in his view, is, is, his argument is that we have run the experiment of trickle-down economics for decades, and it has consistently shown that it's failed, that if you focus on trying to reduce restrictions for companies and those at the top, that somehow the benefits would redound to everybody. And therefore, you know, this bottom-up approach is central. And you can see that in the way that he approached the crisis response. So you're right, he had to pivot and he had to focus on immediate crisis measures, but always in our economic policy has been a focus on trying to help those people who are just trying to make it, make their life a little easier. As Joe Biden would say, give them a little more breathing room. And we have seen that work, uh, that part of the strength of this economic recovery and labor market is a, is a result of those policies. A lot of the things that we aren't talking about today, we're not talking about a really slow return to employment. We're not talking about long-term unemployment. Long-term unemployment has come down the fastest in modern history. Uh, we're not talking about the kind of scarring 
of people who are margin, usually at the margins of our economy and structurally, uh, people of color and, and women who are structurally often impeded from making progress, we're seeing that uh, play out, but we have more work to do on that front. And that's what is animating, uh, you know, that's what's animating his approach, even as we have to deal with these crises, even as we're dealing with the war uh, in Ukraine and global supply shocks, to try to stay focused on that North Star. Last question for you. Um, the White House put out a video uh earlier this week that included uh, President talking to Chris Smalls, who helped organize uh, an Amazon warehouse. Uh, President Biden has talked a lot and sort of been very um, proactive in talking about the importance of labor unions. Can you talk a little bit about what the importance of labor unions, what the, what the, White, what the Biden administration is doing to help support the labor movement, um, and just sort of maybe what this moment where you're seeing organizing at Amazon and Starbucks and elsewhere maybe means for sort of the the economic approach the president has. Yeah, it's an extraordinary moment. And uh, you're right, the president has been very clear and consistent with his, uh, his, his position on this. And it connects to bottom up and middle out. A big part of that uh, for the president, his economic philosophy is that when workers have more power and when they have more voice, we end up with better outcomes for middle-class families. And unions and organizing is at the center of that. Um, from an economic perspective, um, unionization helps to balance uh, this, what we've seen for uh, many years of a, the disproportionate share of, of overall uh, company profits going to capital rather than labor uh, and labor having less and less power. Uh, and unionization is the most proven effective tool to actually create better outcomes and more of a balance between uh, labor and capital. In practice, we are seeing a real resurgence, a resurgence of excitement, enthusiasm, and organizing across the board, across America. And it's happening in places that um, you, you're seeing and you really would expect, and then other places where uh, you wouldn't as well. And what we're trying to do and what President Biden is trying to do is be very consistent, that uh, he is a capitalist uh, from, the, uh, from your great state uh, uh, of, of Delaware, uh, but that uh, he is also intent on being the most pro-union president in history because the more opportunities there are for organizing, there are more uh, opportunities there are for collective bargaining, uh, the more we more opportunity we're going to create for families to, uh, to, to, to have that economic security and that companies do well in those circumstances, that you don't actually have to uh, create a zero-sum uh, trade-off. So we're doing that in how we implement the infrastructure law. We're doing that in terms of how you know, we use federal purchasing power and contracts and how we... Um, how we implement the law. The last thing I'll say, really important, the, uh, the law of the land in the United States is not to be neutral. The law of the United States is that the administration is supposed to promote collective bargaining, encourage collective bargaining. Now that's not require it, that's not you know, intervene in individual labor management disputes, but to encourage it, to encourage that it is a affirmatively good thing uh, if we, workers have more of those opportunities uh, in this economy, and that'll continue to be a key part of his uh, the president's approach. Brian Deese, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck out there. Thanks, Tim. Beyond.
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Before we go, Donald Trump went one for two in this week's Republican primaries. In West Virginia, Republican Congressman Alex Mooney, endorsed by Trump, defeated Republican Congressman David McKinley, endorsed by Joe Manchin, with 54.2% of the vote. Mooney got Trump's endorsement after McKinley voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And the reason the two of them are running against each other in a primary is because redistricting uh, took one seat away from West Virginia. So the two of them had to run against each other. In Nebraska, Charles Herbster, endorsed by Trump and accused of sexual assault by eight different women, was defeated by Jim Pillen, who was endorsed by outgoing Republican Governor Pete Ricketts. Dan, what, if anything, and I emphasize, if anything, can we learn from these results? Nothing. We can learn. There we go. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> it, like the, I find the entire like race by race measurements of Donald Trump's strength based on these results to be so fucking stupid and shallow. It's hard to take. Like, <laughs> I think, well, like here's, the, here's why I think they're interesting. I think it matters which Republicans win these primaries because I think the more extreme – look, it's it's always a tough situation. The more extreme the Republican, oftentimes in a competitive state or a competitive district, the easier time a Democrat may have to beat them in the general election. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes. So it is interesting to find out which of these Republicans actually win the primary. I think that matters. Figuring out which one wins as a test of Donald Trump's strength is not as – it's not as clear cut. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is the overwhelming favorite to be the Republican nominee. He was the overwhelming favorite to be the nominee before J.D. Vance won. He is still the overwhelming favorite to be the Republican nominee after Charles Herbster loses. Whatever happens in Pennsylvania next week, whether Dr. his candidate, Dr. Oz, comes in first or third, it's not going to change the dynamic. I just we what is true is that all of these candidates that are winning, whether Trump endorsed them or not. Every candidate in this Pennsylvania primary, every candidate in that Ohio primary are people who have the same MAGA extreme philosophy as Trump. Like this they is, all, it's not about Trump. It's about they all, Trump. They all, they all bent the knee. Yeah. And it's like, they, but they didn't bend the knee to Trump. That's where they like, we make this about Trump when it's, they bent the knee to an extreme faction of the Republican party that happened to be the extreme faction that picked Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee in 2016. And that's the where I think this is a little bit backwards. Like which one of the, the MAGA lunatics wins the Ohio primary may make a difference in terms of who is easier for a Democrat to run against, but it doesn't tell you anything. All it tells you is that MAGA extremism is, or ultra MAGA, as Biden would call it or whatever, is that that is what that is mainstream Republicanism now, right? That's the rule, not the exception. Is there a MAGA that's not ultra? Like, I'm now so confused. They're all just MAGA. MAGA is MAGA. Is MAGA. It's bad. <laughs> yeah, there is no. We're like, oh, he's Ult- just. Oh, he's just regular MAGA. Who's regular MAGA? 
Who's regular MAGA but not ultra MAGA? Yeah, well, I mean, there, I mean, I, like, is like I don't know. It's like David McCormick, regular MAGA. He's, now ori- in, he's in original strength. He's original strength MAGA. Original strength because he was married to because he was married to Rhino Dina Powell, you yeah. know, and so and he's a hedge fund guy, so he's yeah. just regular MAGA, even yeah. though they worked. She worked in the administration. Who knows? Yeah. Trump did get one more uh, non-primary related big win this week. Uh, Elon Musk said that if when his deal to buy Twitter goes through, he plans to reinstate Trump's account. It's happening, Dan. And former C- uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, who was the one who made the fucking decision to ban Trump in the first place, said the ban was a mistake. That fucking guy. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Trump? Trump's coming back. I mean, we have had like a half joking conversation, both on this podcast, off this podcast, about it's the fact that it seems like Trump's ban from Twitter has not hurt him and probably helped him. You know, it's been... It's sort of like the cone they put around the dog's neck to keep them from hurting themselves. (laughs) His ability to make himself look like an ass is dramatically restricted without Twitter because like he's trying he's trying to scratch himself. He's trying his hardest. He just can't get there. And like the like his crazy, overly long, poorly edited, insane statements just get like a fraction of the coverage a tweet would. The fact that fact says something not particularly. I think complimentary about American political media that because it's not in Twitter, it's not news. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately the fact that Donald Trump used Twitter to incite a violent attack on the Capitol and he's going to return to the platform kind of may, maybe I think makes all of us reassess how we think about dealing with the prevalence of hatred, violence, MAGA messaging, um, extremism, racism, homophobia, misogyny, all of that. On those platforms, because basically since Donald Trump came around, like the the move of sort of the progressive mainstream has been to try to pressure the platforms and the networks to restrict to live to move away from that speech, right? To you know, we're going to convince enough advertisers to take Tucker Carlson off the air. We're going to try to get pressure Facebook and to take Alex Jones down or YouTube to take down you know other various conspiracy sites. And I like that's not the wrong thing to do because these companies have rules and they should and when they violate them to appease demagogues, like they should be under pressure for that. If you're a company, same thing with companies, right? If you say you put out a statement about diversity and then you donate to Ron DeSantis' efforts to bully gay and trans kids, like you you should be called out for that. But in the end, that is a strategy that depends on tech billionaire tech moguls and corporations doing something having good faith in doing something out of the goodness of their heart and like there's no precedent in history that that is a strategy of success we either build the majorities and the power to regulate them or we're just yelling into the void here at this point yeah right? like elon it's a private company elon musk is going to fucking do what he wants to do and it sucks but like uh, just from it, it's it's more like yeah should it happen should Donald trump be allowed on twitter no of course not but like it's going to happen because it's a private company. Elon Musk is going to like do whatever the fuck he wants. The political fallout from that, I would argue, like you just did, is not necessarily favorable to Donald Trump. <laughs> He's He was kicked off Twitter and he currently has his highest favorability rating of all time right now. <laughs> Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Maybe it's just a coincidence. <laughs> I mean, but maybe, it's just, maybe it's just coincidence, but why are so many Republican strategists who are in competitive races all across the country telling reporters that they're terrified of Trump returning to Twitter. But so what I think is 
very much agree that there is a regulatory response to this that is, I think, focused not on how you ban individual people because yeah, yeah, you can't do that. That's not a a realistic. It's it's, we're playing whack-a-mole, right? And but there, there's a lot, and you know, our former boss, President Obama, talked about some of these in a speech recently, where it's like transparency from the companies on the algorithms, some reforms to the Section 230 laws, all of that. But I think the bigger thing, like, and that's the job for like for Biden's FTC and electing enough senators to pass laws and all of that. But I think from the progressive side, instead of trying to muffle the right wing megaphone, is we have to build up our megaphone, right? Like that, like instead of trying to like moderate totally. moderate their content amplify ours, create more of ours. Like we have to match them pound for pound. Don't quit and run away from Twitter. Stay on Twitter and fight. Also, like also check out offline this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, thank you. I didn't even should have even pl- speaking of speaking of offline, speaking of offline, you brought up a story to talk about today that you said you were sick of hearing about and I hadn't even heard a thing about it. So maybe offline is working for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is the this is the Rolling Stone story, apparently, that early in Trump's presidency, he asked his national security team if China had secret technology that would allow them to create large man-made hurricanes and then launch them at the United States. <laughs> the first time I heard about this. Where was I? Uh, uh, you were offline. I was <laughs> I don't think I was off. I think I'm doing too many podcasts, maybe, but that that is for sure. That's a wild story. A, yeah. a hurricane gun. China, Chinese See, maybe if gun. he was back on Twitter, we'd know this because he'd probably comment on the hurricane gun. Yes. We'd, all, we'd all hear about it. You wouldn't have to turn to America's most legendary music magazine to read about <laughs> gossip about the previous president. One more uh, development for Donald Trump that is also not a win. This happened just as we were recording. Uh, federal prosecutors have begun a grand jury investigation into whether classified White House documents that ended up at Donald Trump's Florida home were mishandled. <laughs> Breaking news. And, I, you know, my first thought was, look, if a candidate who's running for president is under federal investigation for potentially mishandling classified info, the one thing we know for sure is that reporters everywhere will be consumed with this story the entire race. I mean, there is probably 50 New York Times reporters right now working on this story. I bet the editors Ken right Vo- now- This is I'm, all Ken Vogel is going to talk about and write about for the next two years. I mean, I'm right sure. now they are trying to figure out how to get that giant headline that will be exactly the same size as the headline about Jim mm. Comey's announcement in October of 2016 yep. atop the Absolutely. New York Times front page for tomorrow. But look, I don't want to prejudge an ongoing criminal investigation, but if classified <laughs> documents ended up at Mar-a-Lago, by definition, they were mishandled. Seems mishandled. Doesn't <laughs> yes. seem like they just, just uh oh, the classified documents got up and, and ran out of the White House yeah. and ended up in Mar-a-Lago. It's, yeah, it's like a, it's an uh, honest mistake. Government regulators are looking into how samples of the Ebola vaccine got in someone's home. Were they mishandled? <laughs> yes, they were mishandled if they were in someone's home. Also, another another piece of breaking news. Apparently, the uh, January 6th committee just handed out subpoenas to uh, Kevin McCarthy and some of the uh, Freedom Caucus loonies so that's something and as we know from i'm sure they'll comply (laughs) as we know from impeachments one and two subpoenas are always enforceable mechanisms with very quick results so (laughs) well we will be talking to the man who got uh his hands on some audio tapes of kevin mccarthy uh jonathan martin about his book his new book this will not pass on monday's pod save america so how about that that is that'll be exciting hopefully he saved some news for us i'm sure he did bring the tapes j mart Bring the tapes. Bring other tapes. Right? Everyone, I, I want. I want tapes that people haven't heard yet 
on Monday's Pod Save America, J-Mart. Let's do that. Um, thank you to Brian Deese for joining us today. Uh, thanks to all of you. Again, go to votesaveamerica.com slash row to sign up and help out. Uh, everyone have a good weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.